0: You can continue to stay standing, please. Uh, my name is Tony, and we are blessed today to hear and learn from 1 Timothy 5 1 through 16. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household, and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Tony. You may be seated. Well, good morning and welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you and good to be with you this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier and it's my privilege to be able to open up the Word of God with you this morning. And so if you're not already there, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. I remember hearing uh, a conversation on sports radio several years back, and I realized, by the way, that this is now two sermons in a row that I've preached right Mid sports references. I promise this isn't gonna be a pattern. I don't wanna be that guy but it was, it was an illustration that I thought was helpful. I remember hearing several years back on sports radio, it must have been kind of in the doldrums of summer when there wasn't a lot going on because it was one of these evergreen topics that sports hosts love to talk about. And the conversation they were having was about the legacy of superstar athletes. Having conversations about things like, will, ever, will anyone ever break Joe DiMaggio's hitting streak? Will anyone ever outscore Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's scoring record, or uh, specifically, if, I, if, if memory serves, the, the conversation at hand in particular was Brett Favre's consecutive game streak, his regular season streak of 297 regular season games. And so they were having this conversation about what, what would it actually take for somebody to come in and blow up one of these long-standing records, or one of these records that seems like it would be impossible to break. What is it actually going to take? And so they had a conversation about this, and they're talking about, well, if you've got the right player in the right system, maybe if If he was playing in football and he had just the right amount of protection around him for a long enough period of time, or if he had the right team around him, if he served under the right coach, maybe if a player got into the league at a young enough age where he was able to maintain his health long enough, they could break this record. And they asked this question, what does it actually take to break a record like that? And one of the hosts, I think very wisely said, well, the step zero that we haven't actually talked about is be a once in a generation athlete. Like, you can have the conversation all day about all of the things that need to be in place in order for those records to be broken, but the step zero, the assumed truth before you even begin to get into that conversation is you have to be a a once-in-a-generation athlete. In other words, you can have all the conversations you want about how these things are going to happen or what it takes or what needs to be in place, but if you don't start with the right identity, you've missed the point. And the text that we're looking at today in First Timothy chapter 5 as we continue on through this book is one of those where we need to kind of stop and first establish what is the step zero? Because we find all kinds of commands and all kinds of instructions in this text, and and, and maybe more than any other portion of 1 Timothy, today's text reads as a very practical and straightforward bit of instruction. It lays out the specific expectations that were on the Ephesian church as it related to interacting with and caring for one another. What does it actually look like for the saints to interact with each other within the context of the church? And then this very particular and drawn-out explanation of what it looks like for the church to care for widows. And you may have noticed, if you were paying close attention as Tony was reading that text for us, that for as practical a portion of Scripture as this is, we find in it no explicit mention of the gospel. And that's really a function of where our Bibles lay out those chapter and verse breakdowns. But remember that those markers, those chapter and verse markers in our Bible, as helpful as they are in helping us navigate the Word of God, are not in fact inspired. And so when we neglect to see how one portion of Scripture flows into and informs another portion of Scripture, we may end up divorcing that particular Scripture from its context. See, one of the basic rules of biblical interpretation and one of the things that we need to keep in mind anytime we come to God's Word and read commands is that imperatives, which are those things that we are told we are supposed to do, are always grounded in indicatives. What has been done for you? In other words, anytime the Bible is going to tell you to do something, tell you a particular area of your life where you need to submit or change or obey some particular standard to which you need to acquiesce, the Bible is first going to root that obedience and that submission in the fact that you have been given a brand new identity. The expectation is never given to a person who does not know Jesus Christ that they will somehow be able to live according to the law of God. And when we begin to remove imperatives from indicatives, when we begin to think that somehow we can live out the commands of Scripture without first rooting our life and our identity and our purpose and our will in who it is that God has already declared us to be, what we will end up with is an impossibility. The step zero for us this morning is understand what God has declared to be true about you. Because apart from that declaration, there is no means or opportunity for obedience. And what Paul is describing here in this text is the way that the gospel has begun to shape not only your individual life, and not only your personal interactions, and not only your personal outlook, and not only your personal values and morals and lifestyle, but now how the very culture of the church itself is formed by the gospel. And it all harkens back to what Paul said in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, where he said this, "The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, as an example of those who were to believe in him for eternal life. See, the gospel is not merely the steps that one takes to become a Christian, and that's typically what people think of when they hear the gospel. They think about the gospel, and what they think about is, what does it actually take me to get from being a sinner who does not know Jesus Christ to being one who does know Jesus Christ? What are the particular steps that are involved in that transformation? And for many, many people, the extent of their gospel understanding and gospel desire is rooted in that particular transformation that happens at the the moment of salvation, but understand that the gospel is not merely the steps that someone takes to become a Christian, nor is it a ladder that one climbs in order to advance from sinner to saint. No, the gospel is more like a diamond in which each facet reflects another piece of who Jesus is. And when we begin to behold the beauty and the wonder and the magnitude, the sufficiency of who our Savior Jesus Christ is, the gospel then actually brings new life and new identity. The gospel is not a line. The gospel is this amazing, all-encompassing, life-transforming, community-building, culture-shifting power of the Holy Spirit. And it changes not only our outlook, but even the way that we interact with one another. It leads us away from self-indulgence and self-promotion to generosity and mutual respect. And so when Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14, I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. He is suggesting, in fact, Almost demanding that gospel proclamation inevitably produces gospel culture. The gospel by necessity, transforms the way that we interact with and view one another. And to try to live out the admonition of 1 Timothy 5, to be generous to one another and to treat one another with respect and to care for the widows, to try to do that, divorced from the understanding of who we now are in the gospel, inevitably is like trying to run a marathon on an empty stomach. You've not been empowered or equipped to do the task that is ahead of you. And that sort of self-reliance leads us to burnout and frustration. It's the sort of attitude that says, I'm going to do the right thing and I'm going to love people and I'm going to serve people and I'm going to pour out my life for people all the time. You are worn out internally because you are living something externally that is not rooted in who you are internally. So the step zero of this text is first understand who you are in Jesus Christ. Understand the life that you've been given. Understand your union with him. It's what we talked about in the catechism that we recited together this morning. The idea that because we have been united with Jesus Christ, we are now empowered and equipped to love and care for one another. But in this text, Paul focuses attention on how this gospel culture leads us into gracious interactions and unexpected generosity within the church family. So look if you would at verse 1 where Paul tells Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now in order to understand what's actually happening in that verse, we, we need to know what it is that Paul means by the word rebuke, because that word comes up often in the writing of Paul. It actually comes up in this very book, and the other time that it comes up in this book is later in this chapter where Paul actively encourages Timothy to rebuke people. So what's actually happening in this particular text? There must be, inherently, a right and godly means to rebuke. Because Paul later gives this instruction to Timothy that he's to rebuke those who are continuing in sin, and you can find that in verse 20. But the reality of the truth is this. There are two different Greek words that are being used here, and it's worth understanding the background of them so that we can understand what it is that Paul means. The word that's translated rebuke in our Bibles in verse 20, later in this chapter, is the Greek word "alencho," which means to state that someone has done wrong. It's to, it's to reprove, it's to expose, it's to correct, it's to convict. It's the idea that when you see someone faltering and failing and continuing on in unrepentant sin in their life, there is a responsibility there to call someone out for the purpose of their restoration. It's a rebuke that is intended to lead someone into a restorative relationship. But the word Paul uses here in verse 20 is a different Greek word. It's the word epipleso, which literally means to strike violently with words. Paints quite a picture, doesn't he? And Paul is telling Timothy here, as you pastor this church, inevitably you're going to end up finding yourself in situations where you need to correct men who are older than you both in terms of chronological age and potentially even older than you in the faith. And Paul's encouragement to Timothy is you need to be mindful of how you do that. Now, Paul's point here is not that you soften the truth or that you skirt the truth. There's still a pastoral responsibility that's been given to Timothy explicitly to correct and to and to guide and to pastor. But Paul is saying, yes, you need to confront, but don't come in looking to cause harm. Don't come in looking to demean. Don't come in with an attitude that is insistent upon your own perspective and your own rightness at the cost of somebody else's dignity. Instead, come into that conversation with some respect and try to appeal to his sensibilities. Encourage him in the faith. Come alongside of him in the faith. And the example that Paul uses for us here, the mindset that this young Pastor Timothy is to carry into these conversations is that when you approach an older man in the faith with a word of correction, you need to come to him as you would approach your own father. You really get to see a glimpse into the heart of Paul in this moment, and he illustrates this idea so well. Now, by God's grace, if I can be honest, I've never been in a situation, I've never been in a position to correct my father on something of spiritual significance. In my 35 years of life, it just hasn't happened. My father's a man who loves Jesus. He's a a man who in many ways has modeled what gospel living is to me, and so I've never been in a circumstance where I've needed to correct him on anything of spiritual significance, but I can imagine in my mind the way that I would want to approach a conversation like that, which is with the utmost respect and deference and love and compassion. I would want him to know that my motivation in having that conversation is only for his good and born totally out of love with nothing else behind it. And I've been in conversations before in situations where I've needed to confront older men in the church, men who, have, who all have more life experience than I have, men who were in many cases old enough to be my father, and in a couple of cases even, men who had significantly more ministry experience than I have. And I can tell you there's an awkwardness about it. There's a unique challenge in having that conversation with somebody who is your elder, but I can tell you that the way that that conversation played out is different from how I would have spoken to someone who was my peer or younger. Or there was a sense of regard and respect in the way that you approach someone like that. And the heart behind all of that is the heart of a son's exhortation to his father. And there's an example of Jesus in this. I mean, if we try to imagine what it must have been like to be Joseph... To be the father of the Messiah, the the human father, the one in the position of being responsible for the young child Jesus. Imagine what it must have been like to be the father of Jesus and yet. Jesus shows the utmost respect and care and concern and compassion for his father because we know he never sinned. We know that inherently he must never have been disrespectful to his earthly father. There's an example to be followed here, and we find that example continued as Paul continues in verse 1 and says, treat younger men as brothers. He's saying there ought to be a care and a concern, Timothy, in the way that you express your love and your compassion for the men of the congregation who are your age or who are younger, that you're to demonstrate this concern for them as you would a brother. And that relationship tends to play itself out differently. There's an assumption within the relationship of brothers, and I can speak with absolute confidence and authority on this because I'm the youngest of four brothers, I can tell you with perfect clarity that there is a difference in the way that you speak to your brothers from the way that you speak to your father, right? You may be willing to joke around a little bit more, you may be willing to be a lot more straightforward and to the point than you would be with your father under the presumption that because you are brothers and because there is that mutual compassion and love, you're going to understand each other, and to the extent that you don't understand each other correctly, you're going to come out to the other side okay. Now, there are exceptions. To that rule certainly but the advice that Paul is giving is not to be brash or foolish in his interactions with the brothers but he's saying you need to treat them like brothers in a sense where where you are to be self-sacrificial where your genuine heartfelt concern for them is to be put on display the same way that brothers look out for and help one another in verse 2 he says you are to treat older women as mothers Paul's instruction here is to treat with regard and love the older women of the church in much the same way that he talks about older men. But specifically, he says, treat them as mothers. And so we have to ask the question, how do mothers expect to be treated? Well, certainly they're to be treated with respect and with love. Certainly it means we ought to engage them in conversation. Certainly it means we ought to be concerned for their well-being and the the well-being of their families. We ought to ask questions. We ought to know what's going on to the extent that we have visibility into it. In the lives of those older women, we need to ask questions and pray for them and serve them. And I've been blessed personally over the years to have several spiritual mothers, my own being the chief example of that, but also several older women who check in on and pray for and reach out to me and my family, women who love us as they would their own kids, who pray for us and dote on us. And I can tell you that spiritual mothers have a unique role of blessing and impact in the life of a young person. And what's fascinating is that Paul actually gives us a picture into this in his own life on two different occasions. First, in Romans chapter 16, where he speaks of a woman who is a spiritual mother to him in his faith. You can read that on your own. And he speaks about the role of spiritual fathers in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, you have many people in your life who are teachers, but you do not have many spiritual fathers. And then Paul says, that's essentially the role that I've taken on in your life as he speaks to the Corinthian church. And if you read those texts, it becomes apparent that Paul had personally experienced what we know to be anecdotally true, that spiritual fathers and mothers, much like our physical parents, have an outsized effect on our spiritual life. Older men and older women, you have a unique and powerful opportunity to invest in and care for and in a sense, spiritually parent those who are younger than you in the church. And you need not be a trained theologian or a perfect person to have that impact. All you need to do is take the years and the experience and the wisdom that God has allowed you to have and ask, how can I use this for the encouragement and the building up of those who are younger? See, your words and your wisdom and your encouragement Have a unique ability to propel and motivate and bolster those who are younger than you. And we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. But then Paul says something interesting. He says, Timothy is to treat younger women in the congregation as sisters, and notice the clarifying thought that he puts around that in verse 2, in all purity. And when he says, in all purity, what he's saying is that as you interact with younger women in the church, Timothy, there is nothing else to be underlying your interactions with those young women beyond your rightful affection for them as sisters. That they are to be treated with a respect and an appropriateness, that he is to be concerned with their well-being. And this, this instruction in particular would have been striking to the early church because of the culture in which they lived. Because to treat a young woman with this kind of regard in all purity necessitated that these women inherently be regarded as valuable, and that Timothy not have a sense of superiority over them because of his gender, as would have been common in that culture. So here's the encapsulation of those first two verses. What we see in all of this is the idea that the family of God exemplified in the church is exactly that, a family. A brotherhood and a sisterhood with spiritual fathers and mothers all sitting underneath perfect Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ. That the church is not a country club and it's not a societal event. It is a living room in which the family of God gathers together to worship and learn from their Heavenly Father. And in the same way that there are expectations within your family for how people treat one another, there are expectations for how people are to treat one another within the church family. And part of those expectations is that we're to treat each other with civility and respect. Part of it is that we care for and love one another, yes, but the step zero of those interactions is that you actually know and are known by others. So do you understand that you cannot love the folks around you as family if you're not around to be involved in their lives? Do you understand that you can't offer encouragement or exhortation if you don't actually know people? Why? Because you haven't earned the right or the place in their life to actually do that. And conversely, you cannot receive the benefits of having a spiritual father or mother or brother or sister if your life is so busy or so private that no one actually gets the opportunity to know you. And that is an uncomfortable word for us. Culturally, we are a private people. Our faith perhaps chiefly among those things that tends to remain private. And so we're fine with showing up at a church on a Sunday morning, but don't ask me to do anything more than that. And certainly don't ask me to get to know people who might ask difficult questions and know what's going wrong in my life because that's just a bridge too far. But here's, here's the operative question for us. What would it actually look like for you to open up your home and your life just a little bit? To break the seal on that privacy What would it look like for you to stick around a bit if your tendency is to leave as soon as the service is done? What would it look like for you to grab lunch or have folks over to your home for coffee or a meal just to ask questions and to get to know one another? And I say all of this, not that you would be motivated by guilt for having not done those things, but to consider the blessing and the purpose that God has given you within the context of the church, because this is the sort of thing that you don't need training to do. If you know how to eat a meal, you are equipped for fellowship. You have been spiritually gifted for the ability to interact in these relationships. So here's my encouragement. Don't rob yourself of the blessing that God intends for you through His body in this place. And don't rob others of the gifts and the experience and the wisdom and the personality that God has particularly and specifically given you. Now, having addressed all of these familial roles, Paul now turns his attention to the particular needs of the widows in the Ephesian church. And our temptation might be to ask, um, if we remember back to Dave's, uh, actually before I go into that, if you remember back to Dave's sermon on deacons, you may recall that the very first deacons were established in the church to help meet the needs of the widows within that congregation. And so the immediate question for us might be, well, why is this such a pressing need that multiple portions of Scripture are devoted to the idea of caring for widows. Why does this come up as often as it does for us? And on a theological level, there's a reality to the idea that God shows a special concern and care for those that the world might be tempted to forget So at the time of this writing, you had a culture that was built almost exclusively around the primacy of men, and if a woman were to lose her husband, she was also losing her primary source of financial income and material support, and that certainly, in this time, would have made her an unimportant piece of this ancient culture. And God always chooses those whom the world overlooks to be objects of his love and attention. We find this thread throughout Scripture. I could draw your attention to a dozen different texts, but I just want to point out two. One from the Old Testament, one from the New. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 9. The Lord is speaking to the people of Israel, and here's what He says. Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. And that Old Testament law is carried forth in New Testament gospel when James says in chapter 1 of his testament, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Here's the interesting thing about James's use of the word religion in, in chapter 1 of his letter. If you look up and just do a word study on the way that the word religion is used in the New Testament, you'll find that it is used exclusively to speak pejoratively of legalistic practices in the New Testament. In other words, the Bible itself has nothing good to say about religion. And when it speaks of religion, it speaks of it in a pejorative sense. But here, James is speaking to the church and he says, if you want to know what's actual useful, right, godly religion, if you want to know what that actually means, it's caring for those whom the world does not value. And it's that father heart of God that Paul has in mind as he lays out the standards for how widows are to be treated within the church. Here's what he says, verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. He's going to explain to us what he means there, but he repeats that very same standard in verse 16, and he uses these intervening verses to describe what a true widow is. But in a nutshell, here's what he's saying. If a widow is a widow by the standard I'm going to lay out, you are to provide an extra level of care and attention and affection and provision for them. And here's how he defines who a true widow is. Verse 5. She who is truly a widow left all alone, has, her, has, her, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day." Now what does that actually mean? He's saying if you want to know who the true widows are, here's how you can recognize them. These are women who have no other means of support or income in this world. they are completely dependent on the provision of God. And so these women, according to Paul, are actually crying out to God day and night, asking for supplication, asking for provision. They're praying the prayer of Jesus and saying, give us this day our daily bread. Give us the things that we need just to get through today because we have no other means by which to support ourselves. And this is in a time where there is no Medicare or Medicaid. There is no Social Security or 401K. There is no disability. There is no fill in the blank with with the social program. These were women who quite literally were calling upon God to give them their daily needs. And notice this is someone whose needs have been abandoned by her own family. Do you understand that the Bible places the first level of responsibility for the needy widow, not on the church and not on the state, but on the family. And look at the reason, verse 4. Let the children or grandchildren make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. In other words, if your parent or grandparent is in the position of lacking the basic necessities of life, that is not intended to be a burden on you. It is intended to be an opportunity for you to display the love from God, and to express your own thankfulness to them for the sacrifices that they've made on your behalf. That, in the same way a child goes to bed in the evening, not scared that he won't wake up to having no food to eat for breakfast, the guarantee for for the needy widow is that her children whom she has cared for and provided for and shared her love with will care for her in her old age. Now, this doesn't mean that someone shouldn't take advantage of proper planning for their own future financial needs. We find, we find all kinds of extrapolation about that in Proverbs, particularly chapter 13 and chapter 21. But this is all, and also, this does not mean that someone who has paid into Social Security, for instance, shouldn't take advantage of it. But the idea is that God is pleased when family members care for their needy, elderly loved ones. And my encouragement to you would just be to consider what that might actually mean for your own lives. I mean, you can think about the potential implications of this for you and your family, but let me just say that given the unprecedented wealth, truly unprecedented wealth, in which we now live, in the country in which we live, within the culture that we have, many of us have never even taken the time to consider what God might eventually potentially ask us or give us opportunity to do. And it's worth giving that some thought. Paul continues by saying, if any Christian does not care for his needy, widowed mother, there is a harsh word of correction for them. We find it in verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So here the correction extends not only to those who would who would abandon their needy widowed mother but also to the one who does not work to provide for the basic needs of his own family. Which means that the able-bodied father who chooses to indulge in whatever his pastime is rather than working to provide for his family had better not show up on a Sunday morning acting like he gives a wit about his faith. Because he has abandoned his first and primary responsibility before God. And Paul's instruction is for someone who claims the name of Jesus Christ and does not care for the most basic needs of their own family, they are worse than an infidel and an unbeliever. One of the harshest words that is given in the New Testament is specifically for men who do not care for their families. And all you have to do is look at the landscape of broken families and fatherlessness in our country to see the havoc that is wreaked when men do not take care of their God given responsibilities. And in the case that a family has abandoned this poor widow, the church is then called to consider her plight. Verse 6. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So before he goes into saying who we ought to care for, he says, I want you to understand someone that you should not care for, which is this particular woman who's self-indulgent. Now, Paul doesn't tell us exactly what what he means by the word self-indulgent, but we can certainly imagine what that might mean. But there is this particular woman who's disqualified if she in her actions and her speech insists on always drawing attention and adulation to herself. And Paul seems to suggest that her self-indulgence is actually proving that she does not know Christ. In other words, the responsibility of the church to care for the widows within its congregation extends to those who first know Jesus Christ. And in the following verses, 9 through 10, Paul lays out the standard for how to recognize the fruit of spiritual life in a true widow. And I want you to pay attention to what he says because it echoes Proverbs 31. He says first, she ought to have been a faithful spouse to her now deceased husband. That there is a level of consistency in love, in discipline, in faithful care, and faithfulness to her husband. She's to have a reputation of being servant-minded and caring for others, not just living for herself. She's to have loved her children well if she has children. She's to have been generous and caring in her interactions with others. In other words, what Paul is saying is her faith isn't just something that she claims. It's not just something that she can give a verbal testimony to. It's something that she's lived out. She has the receipts to prove it that her faith has impacted her life. Her marriage was a testament to her devotion. Her children are a signpost to her faithful, tender, and wise care. Her lifestyle has revealed her hospitable heart. And Paul specifies uniquely that she is to be at least 60 years old, and he expounds on the reason why, beginning in verse 11. Now, this is where it gets a little bit strange for us in a modern context but refuse to enroll younger widows for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now we kind of have to stop and ask what's going on here because in just a minute, Paul is actually going to encourage these younger widows to go and marry. So what does he mean that they have somehow abandoned their faith in Christ by pursuing their passions for marriage? Well, the idea here that Paul is laying out is a particular younger woman. It's the idea of a younger woman who, upon losing her husband, is so racked with grief and emotion is so overwhelmed with the heartbreak of that loss that she makes a grand declaration about how she, was, she is going to spend the remainder of her life. Without giving proper time and consideration to what it is that she's saying, she is declaring herself to remain celibate until her death and to live exclusively for the Lord. It's the idea that there is this woman who is so overwhelmed with her circumstance that she is saying, from this point forward, I live only for God. I'm going to devote myself to Him. I'm going to remain celibate. I'm going to devote myself to the needs of the church and I will never marry again. And Paul says, this is a dangerous thing to declare when you haven't had the proper time and emotional distance to make that decision. Don't rush headlong into difficult and long long-standing and difficult decisions that have long-lasting consequences when you are still in an emotionally difficult place. Because, he says, this young woman is going to find herself potentially in a position where she realizes once again that she wants to be married. And Paul says that that desire is not wrong. That desire is, in fact, a good and a right desire, but she finds herself in a difficult circumstance because she's now made a vow that she has to break. And so she leaves her widowed lifestyle to pursue marriage. Besides that, he says in verse 13, if this younger woman enters into this widowed lifestyle too early, she learns to be an idler, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, And give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. Paul is saying not only the circumstance that we just spoke about a moment ago, but on top of that, this woman is too young to be living this widowed lifestyle. She has too much energy and too little maturity to handle the responsibilities of this widowed lifestyle. Now, there's all sorts of wisdom in this that we don't have time to get into today. There's wisdom for widows about waiting until you are emotionally ready to make serious, long-lasting decisions regarding remarriage or staying widowed. There's wisdom about seeking counsel before you enter into relationships or making grand declarations about your future plans. But the practical application of this, as Paul says in verse 16, is is that the church is to care for those who are truly widows and not to be unduly burdened. And this young widow, by acting impulsively and rashly, would potentially put the church in a difficult situation. So Paul says, as a point of wisdom, young widows do not qualify for this particular treatment. And so Paul's recommendation is that young widows, after a suitable wait, remarry, that they have a proper outlet for their God-given desires, where they are no longer at risk of being drawn away into behavior that tears down the body and gives an opportunity for Satan to take an advantage. So all of this instruction is given so that the church may know how to properly interact and care for the widow. I realize that in some sense or another, this chapter is one that is full of minutia. Such a level of detail and application that we rarely find in the New Testament, but I think this is the big idea of this text. The church is not a charity. Nor is it a clearinghouse to meet the material needs of whomever may ask for something. But conversely, the church is to be prepared to generously and graciously meet the real verified needs of its honorable members. And it is to delight in the opportunity to do so. Because in caring for the needs of the saints, there is a true worship offering being made. The extension of financial support or material support from a church does not end with simply a particular need being met, but rather God Himself is glorified in that offering, one in which attention is drawn to God by an outside world who might see the church caring for that poor widow. One in which God is glorified in the true religion that cares for those that the world forgets, and one in which the church responds to the generous and sacrificial love of God for us by generously and sacrificially loving those who are part of His family. Jesus, in talking about the final days, says in Matthew chapter 25, and the picture that He sets is that of the saints having been gathered in his presence and and him having a conversation with them. And in that moment, here's what it says, Matthew 25, verse 34, Then the king, that is Jesus himself, will say to those, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you in or or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers, you did it for me. That in a very real sense, when we care for those who are in desperate need within the body of Christ, we are caring for Christ himself. And I wonder how often even our best motivated best motivated opportunities for service or generosity are even marked by an awareness of the fact that Christ himself is being served in it. Brothers and sisters, our Savior loved us so much that he came to give himself for us in order that we might be adopted into the family of God. He thought so much of us But according to Hebrews chapter 2, Jesus Christ Himself is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, as broken and as sinful as we are. And in doing so, He invites us to interact with one another as family, an imperfect family. yes but one with a perfect father who longs to see his children care for one another so that through our testimony, more children might be adopted in. What our hearts for one another, our interactions with one another, our generosity towards one another, mimic the heart of our saving and loving Lord would our hearts be so turned toward one another that a lost and dying world looks on and goes, who are these people who care for those within their congregation who have nothing to offer? Who are these people who love and support and care for those whom they're not even related to? And what kind of God must this be to create a culture like this? It's a beautiful invitation, and one that God calls us to respond to today. Would you pray with me? Lord Lord Jesus, my prayer for this morning is that we wouldn't get lost in all of the detail of this text, though we thank you for the specificity that you give us. But God, that through reading this text, we would get a sense of your heart, that one facet of that gospel diamond would be on display, that we would see that when the gospel impacts our own heart and turns us from dead people into living people and from sinners into saints, that the work doesn't just stop there, but that the overflow of the gospel in our lives is that not only would we be an individual people saturated by the gospel, but that we would form and be formed by a gospel culture. That we would know one another enough to know our needs. That we would have enough relationship with one another that we could actually express concerns and cares and extend love and exhortations. God, that we would be known so that we can be loved. And God, I pray that Disciples Church would be the sort of place that is not a social club, that is not one more tick box to be checked off of a busy week, but is to be a family of those who know and love Jesus Christ and those who are known and loved by Jesus Christ, so that in caring for and loving one another, we might put on display the beauty and the wonder of our Savior. God, I pray that in all of these things, you would do the work of transforming our hearts, of giving us new affections and desires, of revealing the parts of ourselves that are hidden or the parts of ourselves that we're keeping from others, in trusting that true gospel culture brings healing, brings satisfaction, brings opportunity for ministry, and reveals the love and the character of our Savior. So God, may that be true of us in this day. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.